Because this is your first full day of retreat, I thought it would be nice to share a a cartoon with you that you might appreciate. This is a Pfeiffer cartoon with a a guy, um, you, you know, little faces of this man, and you can read above his head his thoughts. And his first thought is, too much in a hurry. His second thought, running here, running there. What if I just stopped? looked around, contemplated, meditated. Now he's got his eyes closed. And for one frame, he's sitting there with a little smile on his face, looking pretty happy. He's meditating, right? And then there's the next frame, he's opening his eyes with a sort of alarmed (laughs) look on his face. And the third frame, he's absolutely freaking out with his with his mouth wide open, you know, this sort of scream, silent scream. Which you may have bumped into a time or two today, you know, as you look inside and you you see what's in there. And oh my God, I had no idea it was this bad. Or you might be alarmed at what you find. Um, There's a little saying, self-knowledge often begins with bad news. Uh, almost, I think, every human being who's ever looked inside has bumped into some of this bad news. It seems so easy, doesn't it? Sit down, get peaceful, get happy, get, get really compassionate with all beings, and then you bump into a few things. This way of um, meditating, this way of contemplating and reflecting on our lives is quite unusual in our culture, because our culture, usually the way we learn something, usually the way we um, imagine uh, changing, which all of you came here with some hope of some kind of change, otherwise I don't think you would have come. Mostly we think, you know, if we just get the right belief or the right idea, or if we understand better. And so we look, at, we look to books, we look to knowledge, we look to authority figures who might have it figured out or might inspire us. This way of learning is actually quite different. This way of learning is based on the Buddha's invitation that he made so many thousands of years ago to come see for yourself Come test this understanding in your own experience. Don't believe what I say, don't believe what you've read about, but look within and find out for yourself the truth. So this is really the deepest meaning of experiential learning, is what we are doing here on this retreat. We are learning by attending to our experience not by studying up on anything or reading about anything, but just by this moment-to-moment attending, bringing a sensitive attention to our experience, to the mind and to the body. Now what we know from the proof of doing this is that this very uh, seemingly 
kind of ordinary way of attending actually has a great power in it. It has the power to actually transform us. But again, what gets transformed is not so obvious. When you hear that, you, may, you might imagine that, that I'm speaking about uh, a transformation of our personality, a transformation that will make us more uh, sparkling, wonderful, attractive people. <laughs> not an not a unreasonable expectation. It's just that what gets transformed in this practice is not really the personality at all, but something actually more fundamental. And that is our way of seeing the world, our way of seeing and understanding what is true from our own experience, and our way of being with what we see what we understand, our way of being with ourselves and our way of being with the world. So I want to talk tonight about these two aspects of practice, our way of seeing things, which we could call wisdom, and our way of being with things, which we call compassion. Often in the Buddhist tradition, There's a metaphor used for our, which is meant to describe our condition as human beings. It's it's often described, it's sometimes described that we are like beggars who are out begging on the street for pennies, not realizing that hidden in the hem of our garment are priceless jewels. Or sometimes it's a story of somebody who's living in a hovel, almost on the verge of starving, not realizing that hidden under the floorboards in the hovel is a pot of gold. So these stories are meant to be metaphors for our own condition as human beings, that we imagine ourselves to be uh, deficient, or lacking, or needing something we don't have, not realizing that hidden within is a treasure house. Hidden within is all that we need for our happiness and our wholeness. What this is called in the Buddhist tradition is our Buddha nature. That's our treasure that we have within us something called our Buddha nature. Our Buddha nature is no different from this quality of wisdom and this quality of compassion. And when we learn how to um, begin to um, water the seeds, you could say, of our wisdom and our compassion, This Buddha nature of ours begins to awaken, begins to wake up in us, and begins to reveal its treasure, 
what it has to offer us in guiding us in our lives. Much of the time, in fact most of the time, the way we see things is very influenced by what we want, or what we don't want, or by a sort of dullness or confusion. The Buddha described this as our dilemma, that our minds are clouded by greed, what we want, by aversion, by what we don't want, and by a kind of blindness or ignorance, which just leads to a kind of not knowing, confusion, not seeing clearly. He also discovered that, in, through his own experience, that by directing our attention, that any human being can sit down and begin to direct their attention in a very careful, moment-to-moment way, we begin to actually see more clearly. This is the beginning of a cultivation of a kind of wisdom. It is the beginning of cultivating this power of awareness. Much of the time, our way of being with ourselves and with others is predominantly judgmental. We know what we like, we know what we don't like, we, we judge people, we judge ourselves. Have you done any judging today? <laughs> Have you had a few opinions today about anything? <laughs> it's kind of a, a mode of being that's very familiar to all of us, so we don't, it's nothing we need to feel ashamed by. But, and our culture sort of um, promotes this, um, you know, attitude of, of having the right judgments, you know, and it, it's a matter of pride to, you know, feel like you're on the, the side of the right opinion. Have you ever been absolutely certain you were right and then proved that you were absolutely wrong? Isn't that an amazing experience? It's kind of humbling, isn't it? We've all been there. But when we're caught in that sense of judgment or rightness, we, so, we get so caught there, we so believe it. We judge, we judge ourselves, we judge others, we compare. Have you done any comparing today? The comparing mind is one that we become very familiar with in practice. Oh, I'm doing worse than everyone else. Look at me, I'm wiggling, I'm fiddling, I'm falling asleep, everybody else seems to be able to stay awake, what's wrong with me? We compare, or maybe we feel better than others. Look at that person over there, they must not have gotten the walking instructions. What in the world are they doing? (laughs) Now, if they only had listened, they wouldn't be doing that. We compare ourselves, we judge ourselves, we compare ourselves mercilessly. So, I've always taken such, um, it's always been inspiring to me, this, this, this uh, way that the Buddha described this. He said, 
he, he said he doesn't teach right or wrong, good and evil. That's not his concern, right and wrong, good and evil, which is sort of unusual for a religion, actually. You know, religions usually have lists of rights and wrongs and goods and evils. The Buddha didn't go there at all. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. That was his concern, helping people to deal with suffering, helping people to see the possibility of a release from from suffering. This has direct relevance to our moment-to-moment experience. Instead of judging our experience or thinking about it, is it right? Is it wrong? Am I doing it right? Is it good? Am I having the right experience here? Maybe I, is it like the experience I read about in the book? Instead of all of that, the Buddha's uh, pointed us in the direction of, are we suffering? If we are suffering, there's a need to look again, to understand what is the cause of our suffering and what might bring it to an end. We discover through this simple practice that we can actually be with our experience with less judgment, with less comparing, with more acceptance, and with greater kindness and compassion to ourselves. This helps the heart to feel safe enough to open. The heart, you know, has a hard time in this world. And if we're constantly judging ourselves or others, the heart is not going to feel safe. The heart is going to say, oh, I'm not coming out there. I'm going to stay, you know, closed and safe. So this quality of non-judging and accepting is very, very important in our practice. And it is really the beginning of compassion. When we can bring attention to our experience and see what is true, when we can accept and allow what is true, we are watering these little seeds of wisdom and compassion. You know, I like the analogy of seeds because it's like you can, you can take the seed of an oak tree. It's a tiny, tiny little thing, right? But given the right conditions of water and air and sunlight and earth and nutrients, that little seed has the potential to grow into this mighty tree. It's kind of that old cliche, but it really is true. The same can be said for this quali- these qualities of wisdom and compassion that are in us, and they only need the right conditions to begin to grow. And they're in all of us. There's nobody exempt from the seeds. Everybody gets some seeds. It's just what we do with them that makes the difference.
This is a quote from uh, the same man I mentioned last night, Buddhadasa, the Thai monk who sat under the tree. He, he said this, he said, we do not need to speak of the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha, or any points of doctrine or of the history of Buddhism. We can forget about all those things and begin our studies by examining the words me and mine, or rather the feeling in the heart which gives rise to these words. To truly understand me and mine leads to the extinction of suffering. This quality of awakening our wisdom and compassion means connecting to a vision of life much larger than the narrow field of me and mine. So I want to talk a little bit more about what is wisdom and what is compassion. Wisdom is that quality of being able to see clearly. There's also the quality of not getting identified with our experience, not getting identified with what it is we are seeing. For example, if you are sitting and fear arises. So often in seeing something like fear, we take it very personally and we get identified with it. We say, I am a fearful person. Something is wrong with me. I need to do something about this fear. That's what we would call identification. When we can see what is true without that quality of grasping on, creating a whole story about who we are based on an experience, we are cultivating that quality of clear seeing and not getting identified with the experience so that we can be with fear as fear, not as who I am. This is from the sixth Zen patriarch. He says, good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and wisdom as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and wisdom are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of wisdom. Wisdom is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then wisdom exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and wisdom are the same. That's a very profound statement, actually, because what he is saying is this simplicity, this simple act of bringing awareness to what is true in our experience moment to moment is the waking up of our own wisdom. That's good news. Compassion. What is the quality of compassion? Classically, the definition is the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. Compassion, it is that immediate response of the heart when you see something that, is, that touches you and you have no choice about it. 
what you do with it, you may have a choice about, but that initial moment of seeing some kind of suffering, you just respond. That is compassion, the quivering of the heart. Hildegard of Bingen calls compassion, called compassion, awakening the heart from its ancient slumber. Again, that quality of something becoming alive, the heart being touched. Now, this awakening of the heart, I would say, is a journey. It's not a one-time deal. It's not like we finally have the experience that awakens our heart and then it's awakened forever and ever. No, it doesn't usually work like that. Awakening of the heart is a long journey, a lifetime's journey. And it may be a journey into darkness and difficulty. Or it may be a journey into ecstasy and joy and love. There is no one way in which the heart awakens from its ancient slumber. It's a little mysterious, and we never know what is going to awaken the heart. It would be nice if there was a recipe where we, you know, just said, do this and this and this, and that will awaken the heart. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. I think of some of the people that I most admire, people like the Dalai Lama, people like Martin Luther King, or Nelson Mandela, or Mother Teresa, or Thich Nhat Hanh. Now, none of these people have had really just easy times, you know? They've all gone through a lot of difficulty. And somehow, through that, the heart has awakened. The heart has come alive. So there is that journey that we all go on. Teilhard de Chardin. I went down into my innermost self. At each step of the descent, a new person was disclosed within me of whose name I was no longer sure, who no longer obeyed me. And when I had to stop my exploration because the path faded from beneath my steps, I found a bottomless abyss at my feet. And out of it came, arising I know not from where, the current which I dared call my life. Sometimes we need to go down into the abyss to discover that which cannot be destroyed. Other times it may be, as I said, a journey of ecstasy. One of the most ecstatic beings I think I've ever come upon is this poet Hafiz. And um, he... I think also had some difficulties, but a lot of his uh, expression of understanding was quite joyful. Here's a poem of his. Slipping on my shoes, boiling water, toasting bread, buttering the sky. That should be enough contact with God in one day to make anyone crazy with joy. 
that's an ecstatic person. That's all it takes. <laughs> then there are the quiet mystics, the ones who don't make a big fuss about it, but something unfolds in them, which we could also call the awakening of the heart. Henry David Thoreau. He wrote, there were times when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment. Sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sang around. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not times subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. Living a rather ordinary life, but in a way that deepened and connected him to his heart and to an awareness of something quite large and mysterious. So the heart opens in many different ways and in many different contexts. But in whatever form it does, this awakening of the heart is a journey of intimacy, of becoming more intimate with all aspects of life, of the human experience. One of my favorite descriptions of enlightenment, actually, is from Dogen, Zen Master Dogen. He wrote quite simply, he said about a a woman, he said, suddenly she was intimate. That was his description of her enlightenment. So beautiful and so right to the point. Because this quality of compassion joins us with life. Sharon Salzberg wrote, being able to acknowledge suffering, to open to it, and to respond to it with tenderness of heart allows us to join with all beings and to realize that we are never alone. That quality of heart We could say it's this simple, that quality of connection that awakens. We could say it is this simple. You cut your right hand. You're bleeding profusely. Now, does the left hand stand over here and say, too bad, you're on your own. I got better things to do. (laughs) I'm not helping you out. No. The left hand immediately goes to help, doesn't it? That's the compassionate response. And, you know, we saw a lot of this actually around 9-11, how immediate the response was in so many people in the midst of great crisis, immediately rushing forward to respond with no thought, no training, no... Fancy Buddhist ideas were necessary. It was just, what can I do to help? It's that immediate. Robert Thurman, the great Buddhist scholar, once I heard him give a whole discourse on the human hand 
you know, we got these four fingers and we got thumbs. And he, he talked about the human hand as an instrument of compassion. That these hands are not claws, you know, they're not meant for attacking and tearing meat and killing and inflicting wounds. These hands are, are actually beautifully designed for cooperating and helping and touching and healing, making things. That these hands in themselves are an indication of our compassionate nature. Which is, I mean, I never would have thought of that. It's sort of obvious in a way, but in a way maybe it's not so obvious. Here's this great Buddhist scholar saying, just look at your hands. That's about all you need to know, to know who you are. So when we open in this way and we let ourselves be intimate with life, with another being, with, with uh, we make something familiar that perhaps was not familiar before. Um, this creates connection. There's a cartoon from The New Yorker that I cut out last year. It's a, a picture of, of two couples um, in a hot tub. They're, it looks like they're in Palm Springs somewhere. They're all drinking martinis. They've got, you know, the California sunglasses. They're smoking. They're probably L.A. types. And they're, you know, there's a palm tree, and they're sitting in the hot tub. And one of the women says, I think that if these Islamic fundamentalists got to know us, they'd like us. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, on a certain level, it's kind of funny. And on another level, it's kind of true. Because it's that, that sense that, to become familiar with, to become intimate with, is to get over the concept, to get over the idea of, you know, you're evil, you're this, you're that. It's to become open-hearted, to connect, to find out our common humanity. And so on this journey of intimacy, We begin here on retreat with the most basic of uh, the most basic of um, ways of relating. We begin with the breath. We begin with the body, with sensations in the body, and we encourage a deep intimacy with these very familiar, ordinary objects. And we don't. Um, just begin there and go on to something more interesting. (laughs) You probably wish we would. But we stay there and we keep saying, come back to this ordinary object of attention and bring a wholehearted attention to it because the more you look, the more you see the more intimate you become with your moment-to-moment experience. And this is actually teaching us a way of being. It's teaching us a way of being with anything. If we can be with the pain in our knee, or our headache, or our back, if we can be with things as they are, not as we want them to be, We are learning how to be with the world as it is. 
not as we want it to be, but as it is. And this is how the heart awakens, believe it or not. Getting to know something really up close and personal. Georgia O'Keeffe said, nobody sees a flower really, it is so small. We haven't time, and to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. That is also part of the journey of intimacy, taking time and care with everything, with stepping, with breathing, with seeing, with feeling. So the Buddha, on the night of his awakening, as the story goes, was visited by all the hindrances, by all the disruptive forces of mind, by all the the greed, the aversion, the ignorance. They all came to challenge him, just as you've been challenged today. Now, he had put in his time on the cushion. He'd done a lot of practice. And so when all these forces came to visit, he could say, To each one, he could say to fear, I know you. I've seen you many times before. You're not going to fool me. I know you fear. He could say to anger. He could say to lust. He could say to jealousy. Whatever arose, he could say, Oh, I know you. We've met many times before. You cannot fool me. He was intimate with his own mind. He was intimate with his own mental torments to the point where they could no longer deceive him, where they could no longer dissuade him from his resolve to awaken and be free. Trungpa Rinpoche often wrote about the, the spiritual warrior, what it means on this path of awakening, to be a spiritual warrior. And he said, the key to warriorship is not being afraid of who you are. Ultimately, that is the definition of bravery, not being afraid of who you are. That's quite a a statement, not being afraid. Whatever arises, our anger, our grief, our fear, Sometimes this kind of intimacy with life happens in the context of being stripped bare, of losing everything. Sometimes in the context of dying. In Viktor Frankl's book about the um, camps during the Holocaust, he writes of visiting a woman who was dying. He was a doctor, so he would visit people, and he, he wrote, a young, wim- a young woman knew she would die in the next few days. But when I talked to her, she was cheerful. She said, I'm grateful that fate has hit me so hard. She told me, in my former life, I was spoiled and did not take spiritual ac- accomplishments seriously. Pointing through the window of her hut, she said, This tree here is the only friend I have in my loneliness. Through the window she could see just one branch of a chestnut tree, and on the branch were two blossoms. I often talk to this tree, she said to me. I asked her if the tree replied. Yes, 
She answered, It says to me, I am here. I am here. I am life, eternal life. This summer I had the great um, good fortune to be visiting um, South Africa. And while I was there, I visited a, um, I was traveling and touring and I did some teaching and I also visited a Buddhist retreat center outside of a, a place in northern South Africa called Ikopo. And it's uh, where the Zulus live. It's a Zulu area of South Africa. And in many of the Zulu villages now, um, there's a tremendous amount of AIDS. So this Buddhist center has started a project of going into the villages and trying to help in whatever way they can people deal with this crisis. The government of South Africa is not um, really on top of it yet. Perhaps they will be, but so far they haven't done a very good job of um, providing what's needed. So there's very little they can do because there's no drugs or anything, but they do what they can. So I went out for several days with two women who um, both speak fluent Zulu, and we went in and out of different people's homes, which are very simple uh, huts with dirt floors, very little in the way of possessions. But I was really, so this, and, and people dying of AIDS, there they are, you know, and you think, holy mackerel, you're, you're Ameri- you, you become very conscious of being an American at that point, you know, where you think this should not be, and we could do so much, and what we need, and, you know, all the American fix-it mentality sort of starts coming out. But I saw, you know, Forget it. <laughs> it's not happening. So I was really struck by the um, totally open-hearted, very kind of light-hearted almost uh, attitude of the of the workers who were going in and out of people's homes all day. They would be laughing and you know joking with the people and and just helping them feel better, if nothing else, you know, in the face of so much um, sadness and and sorrow and hopelessness, really. It didn't feel hopeless. It it felt actually quite, um, I hate to say normal, but it was so, it was so open-hearted. That's the only word I can think. It was just like people helping each other in as kind and generous and and uh, connected way as possible. And it was a real learning for me because there, there, there was just this, this quality of life and death all being there together. There was no separation. And people just doing the best they could for each other in the most kind and open-hearted way. It reminded me actually of a time, or different times I've spent being with people I knew who were dying And I remember one woman who had done quite a bit of practice, actually. Um, She was part of this community, and I visited her. She had cancer, and she knew she was dying, and she was ready to die. And 
I visited her just a few days before she actually died. And <laughs> in the course of my visiting her, she started, she said, oh, come with me. I want you to come with me. And we just, she just started on this thing about, wouldn't it be fun if you could come with me? We'd have such a good time, <laughs> you know? And it was just, we ended up just holding hands and laughing at this, you know, and I'm not sure if we were laughing at the absurdity of what she was suggesting, or it was just that she was so ready and so willing to let go. And there was sort of a ecstatic anticipation almost of this letting go into this great mystery we call death. So I'd like to end with uh, going back to our cartoon and um, if I can find it. And, you know, I was looking at this cartoon, the Pfeiffer cartoon, and I, I was thinking, you know, actually, after we've practiced for a while, this cartoon is almost reversed. It's almost the opposite. After we've practiced for a while, it's like we have something in our life which shakes us. So we sit down, we meditate, and it all clears up. It all clears up. There's a sense of okayness that comes out because the wisdom and the compassion are there to catch us when the going gets rough. So I, I, I should draw another cartoon of the sort of the opposite of this one. <laughs> So wisdom and compassion are our companions on this journey. They are likened to the two wings of a bird. We need both. We need both the wisdom of being able to see clearly and the compassion of being able to be kind and open-hearted in the face of what we open to. So thank you very much for your attention tonight. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 2, 2003. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.